Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading its way through the NYRB classics. How you doing, Dylan? We're back. We're back. <laughs> Isn't it great? Welcome back, everyone. We got through the first one. We made it. Who who thought we would be here again? I did. Um, I had to drag you away from the World Cup in order to get you to actually read a book. Morocco. Morocco. I can't believe we're going to have World Cup content on our podcast. I may cut it out, especially when your reply is just Morocco. That will, uh, everyone will know what I mean. I don't think that's true. It's true. Messi! Stop it. <laughs> Do you want to say the line you're supposed to say? Today, we're discussing Robert Walzer's Jakob von Guten. It was first published in 1909 and republished by NYRB in 1999. So a decade before the centennial. Great book to decide to republish. A decade before the centennial? Because it was 90 years to the... Mm, okay, okay. Why are people so obsessed with centennials? Because people like uh, anniversaries, you know. I like celebrating my anniversary with you. <laughs> Ask me what the book's about. So what would you say is exactly the plot of this book? Well, I don't know about the plot, but funny you should ask. I'm going to read the <laughs> description on the back of the book. Okay. <laughs> Jakob von Guten is a 17-year-old runaway who enrolls in a school for servants. The institute is a deeply mysterious place. The faculty lies asleep in a single room. The students, though subject to fierce discipline, come and go at will. Jakob, a spirited and subversive presence, keeps a journal in which he records his quirky impressions of the school, as well as his own enthusiasms and uncertainties, deliberations and dreams. In the end, as the Institute itself dissolves around him like a dream, he steps out boldly to explore still unimagined worlds. That's actually the first time I've read that, and I think it's pretty good summation. As close to a summation as you can get, as this is not a book that is a narrative in the traditional sense of the word. Let's talk a little bit about Robert Walzer. He is Swiss. Although he grew up on the language border, mm -hmm. so he ended up writing in German. This feels like a pretty German book. What, what would you define as a something, a, a, you know what? a literature, literature that feels German? I literally couldn't tell you. It's just sort of the vibe. It's like wearing a wool coat and like walking around a dark city with like weirdos <laughs> popping out of the alleys. That's just Albuquerque. I, it's extremely offensive. No, I wouldn't wear like a, a coat. You wear very heavy coats around Albuquerque <laughs> this time of the year. Okay, when when you go into a coffee shop, they give you a little piece of chocolate on a tray with your drink. Sure. That's the difference between this book and other books. Gotcha. Back to the author. Lived a, how would you describe his life? Diverse interesting episodic which would <laughs> kind of go along with how i would describe the life of jacob von guten himself he lived he lived an episodic life i hope that's on my tombstone <laughs> i did find a couple things interesting about his life one is that his father was a book binder mm -hmm. so from a very early age he was immersed in some ways in the forms of literature in the materiality of literature, which becomes important. Oh my god, that's true. 
And the other one being he went to a school for service. And worked in a castle somewhere in Poland. He was a drifter. He changed jobs a lot. He worked a lot of service jobs, assistant, clerk, that kind of thing. Lived in several different cities. Even in the same city, he would change his lodgings. He liked to uh, wander around. He was a sort of flaneur. There was a history of mental illness in his family. So he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and institutionalized around 1929. For a while, he continued to write. Eventually, he stopped completely. He had developed this unique way of writing, which he called the pencil method, Mm -hmm. which was basically a form of personal shorthand that was written in really tiny letters, which people originally thought was a (laughs) secret code that had to be cracked. Do you think you could write that whole book, the whole Jakob von Guten on a single page? Theoretically, sure. A scroll. Yeah, I've, I've read different explanations for why this happened. Like, it helped him overcome writer's block. Something about he had a cramp in his hand, and this was, like, a more comfortable way of writing, or that it was a manifestation of his mental illness. Mm-hmm. But scholars seem really obsessed with this. Like, the fact that he wrote in tiny letters. Scholars will always be obsessed when geniuses do things slightly weird. I know. Like, this seems like... A huge part of his legacy is just like talking about the fact that he wrote in tiny <laughs> letters. I just think it's insane, but okay. We love to see it. As I said, he enjoyed a long, solitary walk, and he actually died along one such walk on Christmas Day, 1956. There's a photograph of his body in the snow. Notorious photo. I never knew about this photo until now, and it's, it's a grisly photo. It apparently echoes a scene from one of his early pieces of writing. Oh. It's, again, scholars be loving that shit too. I know. That's such a scholarly thing to do. I bet you could pull Tolstoy and Dickens and so many other authors that have a body in the snow somewhere. Just this one happened to die in the snow and people are like, oh my gosh. On Christmas Day. Oh my God. It's just so... So beautiful. It's apt with the holidays, like a week away. It's apt with his love of a Christ metaphor, you know? Oh my gosh. I mean, we could get into it, but a lot of people see Jacob as a, a form of Christ. I think Robert Walzer might, but uh, we'll get into that later. The cover art yes. was done by the author's brother, Carl. Uh, I cannot mm-hmm. even attempt to say it in the title in German, but it means the schoolroom. It's a bunch of kids appearing to be working diligently at their desk with a a dark, stern figure towering above them from the front of the room. And then this kind of a vibrant landscape out the window. Yeah, that's what my eye is probably drawn to at first when I look at that picture. Mm -hmm, The 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 landscape outside, yeah. But none of the kids are looking out the window. They're just looking down with their uh, pencils and their ink pots, Mm -hmm. it looks like. Going back to what we talked about last episode, where the cover art had a frightening closeness to what the narrative was itself, this is even more frighteningly close, especially as it's depicted by his brother Carl. Right, and the main character in this book has a brother who is also an artiste. Named Johan. So, a lot of parallels. Yes. All right, what was your reaction to the book? 
Shock might be the best word. Shock. For, I just, it felt so unique. But unique in a way where I felt like everything that came after this book has tried to mimic this book in some sort of way. It feels like finding a Rosetta Stone for mm-hmm. modernist literature in some ways. Yeah. And what what else do you feel when you discover something so singular and so primal? It's just surprising. I just was wowed from the very first passage to the very last It was great. I loved it. Yeah, I enjoyed the slightly surreal, off-kilter world of the book. We talked about this with A High Wind in Jamaica, this off-balance feeling, but this has that in a very different way. This is more (laughs) paranoid and critical of society, the modern world, etc. It felt on the border of bygone era to what is supposed to be a modern era. And I think that goes along with how I reacted to the prose, where it just felt like this was a dawning of modernism in a text. Because right, this book comes out in 1909. Mm-hmm. World War One is a handful of years away. That completely breaks up. This, this is uh, just post-Industrial Revolution. And I think Industrial Revolution through World War One is kind of the changing of the world from something that is bygone to something that is much more tangible to the world we're living in now. And I think this book's language is also something that feels almost classical Mm. while also feeling something that could appear in a bookshelf tomorrow. Would you like to read from the opening? One learns very little here. There is a shortage of teachers. Anonymous boys of the Benjamin Institute will come to anything. That is to say, we shall all be something very small and subordinate later in life. The instruction that we enjoy consists mainly in impressing patience and obedience upon ourselves, two qualities that promise little success, or none at all. Inward success is yes, but what does one get from such as these? Do inward acquisitions give one food to eat? I would like to be rich, to ride in coaches and squander money. I've discussed this with Krauss, my school friend, but he only shrugged his shoulders in scorn and did not honor me with a single word of reply. Krauss has principles. He sits firmly in the saddle, he rides satisfaction, and that is a horse which people should not mount if they want to do some galloping. Since I have been at the Benjamin Institute, I have already contrived to become a mystery to myself. Awesome. I think this really sets up well this form of stream of consciousness where he'll say one thing... And then he'll completely switch topics or just suddenly begin thinking the opposite of what he was just describing. I think that that is attributable to this journal form. Because, I I mean, if you read my journal, it is very much like that. Random thoughts just come and go. You say one thing and then you completely contradict it. You're totally confident and then you're like, no, I'm a terrible person. What am I talking about? Can we read an excerpt of your journal and compare? No, we're not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, my question here is, is this book actually a journal? And how reliable is the narrator? How reliable is Jakob? I think Walzer is doing a brilliant thing of cross-referencing real life of himself to a very fictionalized narrative form. It feels like something that is just complete experience and in that way i don't think we have to define it as a journal or not it is just 
wholly Jakob's viewpoint more than most other books could be a viewpoint of any other character. Mm, okay, so you're saying it's closer to his mind than even something written on the page. There's one point where he stops and then he just says, please hold, I need to take a breath. Mm, yeah. It feels like he like is just like, I just need to collect myself before I continue thinking about what I needed to think about. I liked the idea of the journal in learning a little bit more about Walzer's life. He had used this form of writing before, this schoolboy diary thing. And this feels like almost a comment on a more straight-faced, this is a journal book. Yeah. Because there's not a lot of plot, but one of the things that is going on is he's supposed to write a life account. He's supposed to submit this to the Institute for whatever reason. It seems like the only thing he ever has to do is write about himself and get a photo taken. Like applying for a passport or applying to college. He's got to establish some sort of identity for people to consume. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and like a journal is a way of exploring your self or your construction of yourself. Yeah. And I've heard it said that a journal is never really private. People always write a journal with something in the back of their mind that someone might read it. Mm-hmm. That no, like no journal is like a truly private thing. So the the whole book seems to be commenting on this idea of selfhood. Sure. And not to give away the ending, but it ends with him fleeing the journal. Yeah. He's putting it down. He's leaving it behind him. And he's like, now I can finally live. Going back to the original question, the second part where is this an unreliable or reliable narrator? The best way I could describe it is Yakim himself is as reliable as he can be. I don't think he's ever trying to fool the audience or do anything beyond just trying to give his most directly personal account of what's going on. At the same point, everyone is an unreliable narrator to themselves. Sure. All, all narration is unreliable. Yeah, especially, and like quite often, we might be our own most unreliable narrators. And mm. I think that sort of self-fiction can be brought into the text of Jakob von Guten as well. As we talk about, this isn't just a journal. This is a complete consciousness of a human being. I felt myself questioning the idea of whether there is a school, whether this is like... <laughs> The whole idea of the school or the whole idea of Jakob is an imagining. Mm -hmm. You also question whether he mentions he's from a semi high class background as parents. Yeah, I don't believe any. I just like inherently distrust anything he said about his background. I didn't distrust any of that. That never crossed my mind. Really? So my unreliableness came more in the... uh, finer details the the micro rather than the macro where you're were distrusting of the whole school his background mine came from like the smaller interactions did kraus playfully scold him all the time like this or was this his imagination that he wanted kraus to scold him all this time things like that is what i was questioning more especially because dreams are much more emotional and influential to him than real life intense things can happen in real life and he blows them off and other times he dreams he slapped his mother and feels guilt for days over it he never did Mm. such a thing 
but he feels more guilt over a, a dreamt slap than he does neglecting his studies, his chores, everything in the real world. Good shout. I mean, this whole idea of reality seems somewhat nebulous within the book. And the fact that you and I have totally different interpretations of it is a testament to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the multiple ways you can read it. Speaking of mystery, in the bit that you quoted, Jakob talks about becoming a mystery to himself. There's also a mystery at the center of the book's plot, such that it is, mm-hmm. pertaining to the inner chambers of the school. Jakob is denied access to them. All the students are correct. Except for Kraus, I think, is allowed to go in there. Kraus is the special kid that gets to do everything. What he wants. What do you think is going on with these inner chambers? Well, I assume they're nothing special at all. But the importance in them lies in our imagination of what they could be. Exactly. And of what Jakob imagines they could be. There's an amazing segment of the book where he dreams that the Fraulein, who is Herr Benjamin's sister... It's a brother and sister that more or less run and teach at the school. The teachers are, not, are asleep, they're absent, they're not really involved. I, I love the descriptions of how the, the teachers are just sort of like doing nothing. But there's a point where he dreams that she takes him into the chambers and he goes to a, a, a wailing wall almost and he goes to these cellars and he's asked to kiss the ground. He's taken through what he says could be a like glass-like structure which opens up into the, the stars of the heavens. And I think the final thing that she says to him through all this dreamt imagination of what could be beyond those closed doors that we're never able to access is really pertinent to the idea of what mystery and freedom can be. This is freedom, said the instructress. It's something very wintry and cannot be born for long. One must always keep moving, as we are doing here. One must dance in freedom. It is cold and beautiful. Never fall in love with it. That would only make you sad afterwards. For one can only be in the realm of freedom for a moment, no longer. Look how the wonderful track we are floating on is slowly melting away. Now you can watch freedom dying. If you open your eyes, you will have your full share of this agonizing sight later in life. It seems like the whole book is built around this, like this idea of the mind being this infinite landscape of possibility and the reality being the opposite. mundane. Yeah, but like all of these characters investing the mundane with these really lofty meanings. Mm -hmm. This is almost like you have to give up your sense of freedom to be able to glean the answers of the mysteries. Because Krauss himself, as Jakob describes on multiple occasions, just has no inner drive or creation. He is sort of a robotic uh, servant in a way. And because he is such a servant, he's the only one that gets to see the inside of the walls and stuff. Like, he's the one that gets to glean these mysteries that the people that actually dream wonder about. Krauss has no wonder for it, and therefore he's the one that has the key into the back door. Well, so Krauss, who is, I guess he's kind of the model student. Mm -hmm. He seems to, yeah, have special privileges. Jakob admires him the most. There's potentially a kind of homoerotic vibe to it. 
Oh my god, yes. Okay, and I, I like Krauss is the character that seems the least real, like the least human. <laughs> like this is a very cerebral book. Yeah. But that is the least fleshy character. <laughs> like I'm like, just is Krauss even real? Like, did he just completely imagine Krauss? I love the part where he has this dream of the inner chamber because it goes back to the thing where the dreams are more impactful than the reality of the situation. Behind the walls could just be nothing or a goldfish tank or something. But it, the, the, the beauty of dreams and the beauty of this abstraction that we all hope to glean answers from is more important than the answer itself. And I found that really interesting. It was such a change up in terms of the language. Mm-hmm. It seemed to be hearkening back to like more of a medieval theology, virtues being in capital letters, like morality. Yeah. The language is more florid. Everything seems a little bit more colorful and flowing, whereas the parts of the school, everyone feels really claustrophobic. It feels kind of drab and yeah. neutral. I know, it, it, it definitely stands out from the rest. So there are a number of dichotomies in the text. We get the world of the school, and then we get the world of this unnamed city, which we presume is Berlin. Yes. We have, we've talked about dreams versus reality. And then there's also, because it is a school for servants, this master versus slave contrast. Yes, yes. I thought there was an interesting part of the introduction that hinted at this. The role of servant accorded with Walter's passion for the minimal. Elementary happenings and small private feelings, which he calls the true truths. Max Broad, one of his first admirers, appositely remarked, After Nietzsche, Walter had to come. Yeah, so let's talk about Nietzsche, my favorite subject. Woo! Is it um, really? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I don't, I'm like, people start talking about Nietzsche. I'm like, okay, I uh, got an early morning. <laughs> <laughs> but from what I understand, one of his big ideas is, for the purposes of argument, two kinds of morality. There's a master morality and a slave morality. And the master morality values things like power and independence and self-determination. And the slave morality values things like kindness and humility. Uh I think he ultimately argues that like the real way to be free is to achieve some kind of balance between these things. Sure. Like you can be independent and humble in some way, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, Jakob seems to fall well into that frame of reference that Nietzsche But I has. think he really, he really struggles with it. I was about to say, is, is he or is he the apotheosis of it? That's the thing, is like he wants to value smallness, but it seems like he can't quite achieve it. And there's also this feeling from the beginning, the beginning of the journal, it seems like he started the journal a little bit into his time there. Yes. And he's looking back and he's like, how stupid I was when I first got here. (laughs) And There's a great scene where he's asked to share this small bedroom with four other boys and he starts crying and they put him in basically a broom closet. (laughs) They're like, hey, at least it's just one. It's just, it's at least just you. 
He's like, that's better. And he's like, how silly I was back then. Right. So I, I got this creepy feeling that since he had been at the school, he'd been lobotomized or, you know, he'd he drunk the Kool-Aid, sure. so to speak. Did you get that feeling that it was eerie? That there was something sinister was behind this shift in his consciousness? A bit, but ev- the sinister aspects I always felt was when Herr uh, Benjamin showed up. Mm, okay. He has a really uncomfortable dichotomy between being someone who is a maybe maybe the other side of the Nietzsche personality of someone who has this intense forms of control and violence in uh, affecting that control and then other times this begging persuasion Mm -hmm. to try to garner sort of sympathy and regret and pity at other times where he's trying to be like but you're my friend, Jacob. Like, I like yeah. you more than the rest. There's this manipulation, this weird patriarchal relationship happening between 100%. them where he's loving, but he's also abusive and he's also like desperate yeah. for his approval. One thing I wanted to bring up is some of the biblical illusions. You, yeah, you, you, you caught a lot more of these than I did. Well, I think one of the big give-me's is in the naming. So uh-huh. the book is titled Jakob von Guten. And I should say, in, in the tradition of a lot of Bildungsroman books, like about the, like an education is like named after the main character. Uh-huh. In addition to the journal, we also have that genre thing going on. I should have uh, mentioned that earlier. So the it's the Benjamunta Institute, of course, biblically. Jacob is the father, and Benjamin. Ben, Benjamin is the youngest son of Jacob. So <laughs> we have the student of the school bearing the name of a biblical patriarch, right? Sure. And you can argue that there's a reversal inside of the narrative as well, as far as Jacob von Guten sees it, both Fraulein and Herr Benjamunta have this weird relationship of begging for servitude for Jacob at the same time, almost pleading their loyalty to him. Everything's very twisted. Yes. (laughs) It's a weird web of relationships. Going back to this school versus the city, there seems to be an element of the city which represents more freedom. Mm -hmm. The school is the old world, And these two things are in conflict with one another. Mm -hmm. Often I go out onto the street, and there I seem to be living in an altogether wild fairy tale. What a crush and a crowd. What rattlings and patterings. What shoutings, whizzings, and hummings. And everything so tightly penned in. Right up close to the wheels of cars, people are walking. Children, girls, men, and elegant women. Old men and cripples and people with bandaged heads. One sees all these in the crowd and always fresh bevies of people and vehicles. The coaches of the electric trolleys look like boxfuls of figures. The buses go galumphing past like clumsy great beetles. <laughs> then there are wagons that look like traveling watchtowers. People sit on the seats high up and travel over the heads of whatever is walking, jumping, and running below. Fresh crowds thrush in among the existing ones, and all at the same time there's a going and a coming, an appearing and a vanishing. Horses trample, wonderful hats with ornamental feathers nod from open, swiftly passing rich folks' coaches. All Europe sends its human specimens here. 
Okay, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> when I come home, Krauss sits there and makes fun of me. I tell him that one really must get to know the world a little. Know the world, he says, as if immersed in deep thought. And he smiles scornfully. There's this energy. We get lists, we get verbs, we get movement that we do mm -hmm. not get. The world of the school is like, he describes stasis and like a lack of action. People yeah, sleeping, like, <laughs> being frozen. One of the most exciting things that not in, not in dream world happened in the school is him. And I think it's Schlinsky or it's shot. Light a candle, which is forbidden by the principal. And that's like, wow, we lit a candle. Like it's, it, it's this form of creation that is banned from school. And Jakob's brother who, uh, mm. as we said before, is, a, is an artist. He belongs much more to the world of the city. He's bohemian. That's the ultimate word to describe what they're doing. Yeah, so he's got a, t a different worldview. I think he says at some point, Jakob, you need to understand the powerful people, they are the weak ones or something like that. Yeah. So he offers an alternative view, like a way of existing in this new reality like you alluded to, like, we're shedding the 1800s. This is the mm -hmm. 1900s now, baby. Like, we're out on the street. Things are going down. People are striving. We got to make our way in the world. And here Jacob is willingly submitting to a school of servitude and all the, the whole time feeling like he's probably being scammed and yet proceeding <laughs> into this anyway. Yeah. Talking a little bit about sort of the outside world, the, the change of the 1900s. I, I, I don't know how much I want to get into this, but I thought it'd be interesting to bring up. There's a few paragraph section where Jakob and Krauss make fun of Jewish people. Yeah, I got a little shiver when that Oh my God, it was that chilling. It's so bizarre when you read about the representation of Jewish people in yeah. early 20th century literature. Granted, anti-Semitism is anywhere, but these two people stop to talk about the world outside and it's mainly about how annoying the Jewish people are. It's just got a historical context that impacts us a lot. We have a lot of unusual characters with a lot of confusing, overlapping relationships. Mm -hmm. What do you think Walzer is achieving with this approach? Well, he strips all of them of their identity, basically. Mm. The very beginning, he goes boy by boy, setting up a bit of a personality to them. But the brilliant thing is he, st he starts to set up these character traits and these emotions that all these boys have. And then they just never, the, the, those characteristics never really come back. As the school does, Walzer himself strips them of their identity as soon as they enter into the story. Yeah, I was diligently taking notes about each of them so I could account for it later. Little did I know, none of that would be relevant at all. <laughs> I'm like, Shalinsky, Polish. He has an electric tie pin. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's part of the, maybe like the solipsistic worldview of the journal. Only Jakob exists. And yeah. he, can, he can only write up people like a police report. Like, here's this mm -hmm. quick little thing about who this guy is. But we hardly ever, I never feel like I'm really interacting with any of the other boys. I mean, there's that part where he's groped. Oh, yeah. We get memories or reflections of Jakob's arguments with Krauss. I never feel like I'm in a scene and I'm with another person. 
other people are like ghosts and I can only see their shadow. There's like a lack of conversation. Yeah, that's a really good point. Almost all speech in the book comes in the form of monologue. Yeah. And they have breaks in these monologues where it's almost like they ask a question and you would assume a dialogue structure would pick up here and Jakob would answer or Herr Benjaminta would answer. And it's just like, you love me, right? Oh, I know you do. Are you crying? Oh, don't cry for these tears for me. (laughs) When a question is posed, it's purportedly answered, but it's not like he's answering the question that was asked. Yes. The questions and answers don't match. And then someone will be like, yes, I I will answer you. I have a three-part answer. And all three parts are like the same thing repeated. (laughs) Uh, Walter Benjamin, famous German. Guess we have to bring him up. So he wrote an essay on Walzer where he said that his characters were like if characters from a fairy tale had to deal with real life. Mm -hmm. And because this book explicitly mentions fairy tales, I think that's a helpful way of thinking about it. But unlike a fairy tale, there is no discernible forward motion to the (laughs) plot. Uh, semi-recently, you and I were reading a book about three-act structures and narratives. and What book? When we were talking about how we would write our own stories. and been Oh, 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 that Robert McKee. And he, he brings up how there's mini-plot, which is episodic structures that break away from the three-act narrative. But even then, most mini-plots you can still structure in a way where you can still follow a, a sort of arc here to move the reader along. This book even just doesn't do that. I don't know. There is an incredible climax. I will give it that. I don't know. I think the end of the hypothetical first act would probably be when he finally does write his life account. That's a good point. The end of the second would probably be when he goes to the chamber. Okay. That makes sense. Maybe. The last third of this book just like whooshes by like a tram car. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You brought up Max Broad, a quote from him, who Mm -hmm. famously was Kafka's literary executor. So we have to talk about Kafka, for better or worse. We all love Kafka. Walzer and Kafka, their works are often compared. What do you think is underpinning this connection? You told me that the first day I asked you what you thought of the book, and you said... It's like Kafka. And I was like, okay, but like, what do you think about it? And you're like, it's like Kafka. I know, but the thing is, it's just like, it feels like It's inescapable. And I hate that because it's really not fair. That's the wrong way around of thinking about, because if literature is a lineage, Kafka is a descendant of Walzer. Yeah. But does that even matter in the Jakob Benjamin, we're flipping the order of everything thing? Does it matter? (laughs) No, Kafka has become this icon he's like che on a t-shirt sure we can't escape him another random thing this book made me think of there was a discursive essay that came out somewhat recently by this guy josh cohen he wrote this book called losers (laughs) it's like an investigation of the meaning of loser and so it was kind of political but he draws in a bunch of literary examples He says that we hate losers culturally because losing is our natural state. He draws in Robert Walzer, Franz Kafka, and then Thomas Bernhard as part of his loser pantheon. What do you think about Jakob being a loser hero? 
See, what I'm trying to do is not talk about the final passages of the book, which I think emphasize, like, completely lock down this loser mentality of this guy. Well, you can allude to it from a distance. He's drained of all freedom, all reality. There's this emptiness in him, even though he still has this excitement and boyish charm that he has at the beginning. I have no idea, honestly, what the ending is supposed to quote-unquote mean. Like, when I finish the book... I'm coming to what I think the ending is as of we are talking. Okay, fair (laughs) enough. I finished the book late at night, and I was tired, and I was like, okay, I'll go to sleep, and maybe in the morning this will dawn on me. And then I did some reading around it, and monkey see, monkey do. Like, what what do people think happened here? What happened between the front cover and the back cover? And honestly, nothing anyone has said or written about this book has really given me more clarity. It's just introduced more questions. That's pretty cool. I don't think this book can be spoiled. No, it's like It's a book of ideas. It's not like a book of happenings. The way that Jakob escapes from the construction of the text at the end, the book does that in my mind. The book escapes any attempt that I make to try to like, this is an account of Jakob von Guten. Sure. Because the title of the book is literally his name. His identity is like, I cannot grasp it. Yes, it's it's slipping from my fingers. You know what's interesting is that the film adaptation, I I think there's been a couple, but the, the, the more popular one with Margaret Rylance is not called Jakob von Guten, but Institute Benjaminta. Mm-hmm. Which is, I don't know if it's purposeful, but a complete redefining of what the identity is of the story. Totally. So the introduction is written, and you've quoted from it, by Christopher Middleton, who translated these books while Walzer was still alive. I believe he was institutionalized by that point. But he calls the language of the book unliterary. Uh, and that made me wonder, <laughs> is that true is that fair to say and if it is what is literary language oh lord i don't know how to even approach a question like this or approach anyone that decides to describe something unliterary the thing is if i describe this book to somebody on the street they'd probably be like shut up leave me alone what could be more literary than what we've been talking about for the last whatever hour I think he describes it better when he describes this book as sort of an analytical breakdown of language. Okay, that part made my skin crawl. How so? He calls it a, what, an analytic something soliloquy? I found it. An analytic fictional soliloquy. (laughs) So it's a journal. It's a (laughs) made-up journal. I don't think it's a literary, but it is a way of... It's just a very reduced way to look at things and, and to approach the literary medium. It's a, it's a choice. I don't know if this was controversial or not. Put on your pearls, get ready to clutch them. I think <laughs> literature is more of an approach to reading something rather than what a text is or isn't. Because okay. anytime you try to define it, you're going to exclude something that ought not be excluded. Mm-hmm. And any writer is a reader. So they're going to take yeah. that, that whatever, literary approach quote, and quote. A- apply that to their own writing. Absolutely. They, they might try to push against the grain of what they've seen before. Or rebel against it. 
Exactly. And, and what's interesting here is I think this podcast has informed more of us than the book itself. I feel like a great book like this unlocks the personality of the reader and how they approach it and analyze it more than the story itself. That's part of what we have stories for. Exactly. So in conclusion, is this book a classic or should it stay buried? Oh, it's a classic. Why? Because why would we bury the missing link between Kleist and Kafka? It's an enjoyable book to read, and at the same time, it informs a lot of the artistic and literary things that would come before and after it as well. Yeah, I agree that the book is a classic. However, I don't think it's a classic I would recommend to every reader. I think if you like books that make you think, then you'd probably like it. It's, it is a fun experience, and it's fun to talk about. If you come to books for a story, this, this ain't for you. And that is not a negative. I associate this with a kind of adolescent attitude toward the world. And I know it's about young people. It's a school. But um, is that just me? We'll let the listeners decide if it's fair or not. There you have it. Either way, we bo- I think we both really, really enjoyed this book. I loved it. I really loved it. Well, we hope you love it too. And if you hate it, we hope you hate it articulately. Thank you for listening to Unburied Books. Please join us again in two weeks when we discuss Lolly Willows by Sylvia Townsend Warner. Until then, you can reach out to us online. We are on Goodreads, Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail at the handle Unburied Books. We'd love to know what you thought about today's book. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye-bye.